Coming up on Tech News Weekly, the Google Pixel 4 in the eyes of an iPhone lifer. Also, kids are apparently hacking screen time on iOS to get around those nasty parental locks. Uh, The Internet Archive now offers thousands of MS-DOS games for free. You know what you're doing this weekend. Uh, Should you warn people that come into your home that you have a smart speaker? That's an interesting discussion. We cover a whole slew of dire EV news up next on Tech News Weekly. Podcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. This is Tech News Weekly, episode 104, recorded Thursday, October 17th, 2019. This episode of Tech News Weekly is brought to you by CashFly. Give your users the seamless online experience they want. Power your site or app with CashFly CDN, that's Content Delivery Network, and be 30% faster than the competition. Learn more at twit.cashfly.com. Hello and welcome to Tech News Weekly, the show where every week we talk to and about the people making and breaking the tech news. I'm Micah Sargent. I'm Jason Howell. You guys did a great job last week Thank uh, you. maneuvering around the crazy <laughs> fires. It was uh, it was it was an interesting take on things. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we made it happen. Yeah. And I'm excited to say that today I am wearing my special T&W socks here. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Got to get the uh, the banana on the show. The bananas on the show. Yeah. I love yep. it. Did you buy those socks specifically for the show? I want to say or, yes because like, that would be the the fun answer, but the fact okay. is no, I've had them for a while. No, this is just a, a thing. This is just a thing. Yeah. <laughs> right on. <sighs> well, it is time uh, to get started with the show this week. Google on Tuesday announced some new hardware, including an ultra portable Chromebook, new Pixel phones, some earbuds, and some new Nest products. We've heard quite a bit from folks who are settled comfortably within the Android Google Pixel camp. Don't know who you're talking about. (laughs) So I thought it would be interesting to bring in someone from, quote, the other side, as it were. We have Lori Gill, managing editor of iMore, here to talk about her thoughts and reactions to everything Google announced at their hardware event. Welcome, Lori. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're excited to have you here. And I want to get started with the new Pixel 4. Uh, What are sort of your immediate thoughts on on this device and uh, sort of what you thought seeing it and, and, you know, hearing about what it can and can't do? Yeah, so the Pixel 4 definitely is reminiscent to me of an upgrade from the iPhone 10 to the iPhone 10s, for example. It uh, Hardware-wise, it looks like an inter- incremental upgrade, but there's a lot of things going on behind the scenes that make it a really big deal, um, especially the upgrade to the um, camera. The, it's got the camera bump now, <laughs> which uh, I think early on when we first saw a lot of images of the the iPhone 11 and the rumors of it having the squircle, I think is what people are calling it, I was just barf grossed out by it. I just could not <laughs> not look at it. It was so offensive. But we saw so many leaks that by the time it actually came out, it was just like, well, that's that's what it looks like now. It's not really a big deal. So for the the Pixel 4 having the same squircle, it's it's all kind of the same thing in comparison to the way it looks on the Pixel 4 versus the iPhone 11. I actually prefer the way the squircle looks on the Pixel 4 because yeah. I like I like that it's dark. I like it. I like so it doesn't show these big 
gaping holes like it does on the iPhone 11. It's it's just, it looks like a big black square instead of three black circles on a colored background. So I actually prefer that look. Um, I thought they're they're uh, the 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 way they adjust for the notch. So we we know why you need to have that sort of banner across the top, and you want to have this edge to edge screen, but to have really great camera features in it, you have to use up more the top of that screen. So instead of a notch, they put what I'm hearing people call a forehead, which is, hmm. it's it's a good alternative. I've gotten used to the notch. I don't even notice it anymore. Um, I actually appreciate that there's like some little extra things that happen in the in the upper corners mm-hmm. of the iPhone 11. But the, the forehead is a nice alternative um, to that notch. So if you really are just really grossed out by that, or you just don't like the way it looks, a, a small banner at the top is much better than just the large bezels of the old phones that we that we had three years ago. So it's a great compromise. I think those are the two like biggest noticeable changes between the two. I don't know why they didn't keep the the is it pinkish or not pink or something like yeah, that? Not pink, not yeah, pink. not like pink that. with the phone color. Who the heck I knows. Think. I don't know why they name, name their colors the way they do, but yeah, pink kind of is fun. such. It's such a popular color, right? It's still a very popular color right now. So the fact they they didn't offer it with their flagship phone for this upcoming year to me is kind of it's kind of weird, kind of a mistake. I don't think the millennials <laughs> are going to be into the orange color as much as they're into the pink color. It's it's mm-hmm. such a, a common popular color that I was surprised to see it go. Apple did the same thing. They got rid of the rose gold and a lot of diff- oh, a lot of things. Broke my heart when they Three. did that. Yeah. Although, but although we, you got, we got green, pink, right? so so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, see, you they, know, they had they got rid of pink uh, or rose gold a while ago. My heart was broken then, and then they said, "Oh, you know what, Micah? We heard your heart was broken, so here's a green want. phone." Yeah, uh, I'm also noticing that you don't use a case on your phone anymore you used to have a green case on your phone and now you go naked so that's a big deal (laughs) yeah because see here's the thing is that everybody who and we're getting a little off topic but everybody who was uh oh oh they've got a green phone now but you're gonna put a case on right right i can't let them win i have to win (laughs) obviously well and along along those lines you know what you were talking about laurie as far as the camera bump you know, you end up putting a case like I, I know for myself, I have to put a case in my phone. Like <laughs> I had years there where I was like, I never dropped my phone and you never have dropped your phone until you drop your phone. And then suddenly and then it was like, OK, I can't afford to do that anymore. So and when you put a case on these devices, suddenly that bump becomes not a bump. Right. It, right. It's a, like it it's sits not flush a bump. and it's not a not a big deal. So at least there's yeah. that. There's ways around it. I got to say, it really bugs you. Lori, I agree with you. That I love how it looks on on the Pixel Four, the 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 camera bump. I think the way that they sort of lean into the the difference between the two does look good. And that white one is, I mean, that's that's a hot phone. Yeah, it's the one that I ordered. Mm-hmm. I like that's to a look good choice. The, white one. the, or, the orange one kind of scared me. You didn't me order orange? <laughs> no, you know what? That orange color just I, I'm not sold on it. Even though the white one the white one does have the orange, orange styling button. on the button, <laughs> and I like that Google does that. They really they have in the last couple of years gotten kind of playful with the color scheming, mm-hmm. um, not just yeah. going for well, we just changed the 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 body of the device to be this color, but rather kind of like switching it up and going like with a panda color format of black on white in in yeah. interesting ways. Uh, so I like that they do that. But yeah, I, I maybe I'll see the orange in person and and be like, man, I wish I had. But it reminds me too I much didn't. of a basketball. It, well, 
We're so close to Halloween. It just reminds me of like a Halloween phone. <laughs> if you put a little, some triangles and a smiley face on the back, yes. it become a, a jack-o'-lantern. Oh, I, I can't wait to see those cases come out. Right? You know there's going to be people that are going to make cases to match the phone and the squircle. It's going to yeah. be fun. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I guess that could yeah. be that the squircle already serves as one of the eyes for the jack-o'-lantern. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, can I can I ask you a question? There's... um. Let's see here. And where, where do I even begin? One of the things that I was kind of hoping to see, and, you know, this was busted very early on because this, as as we mentioned earlier, is probably one of the most leaked phones in history, uh, is yeah. the, the missing uh, or the lack of an ultra wide on the phone. And I know the, the new iPhone has this. I know that I've used an ultra wide camera on a number of phones at this point. And it's just one of those features that I, I authentically love and enjoy using. For the right scenario, I'm always happy when it's there. Do you think that's a big miss for Google? So I, I think it's – I am of the opinion that if you – you can always crop out. And, and today's cameras are so capable of – clear, beautiful pictures when you crop in. So I love telephoto. I have the iPhone 11 Pro, so I have the ultra wide and the telephoto. And I do use the telephoto lens. I love it. I think it's great. But I know that I can also get that same picture if I just use the regular wide lens and then crop in. Mm -hmm. So ultra wide gives you a larger picture. It tells a greater story. And I think that that is something missing with the with the Pixel 4 uh, maybe they were trying to save a little money, so they didn't want to do those all three of the cameras. Um, but now that I've had the opportunity to use ultra wide on a phone, I take half a dozen of you know if I go on a trip and take three dozen pictures, at least a half a dozen of them are ultra wide because I realize there's so much more in this photo than what the regular widescreen would have on it. I want to capture the flowers that are blooming off to the side. In fact, they they show they shot a picture of um the uh Golden Gate Bridge from afar. I just happened to have been in San Francisco last weekend. Took similar photos from a further distance, used the ultra wide. So I purposefully just for my own and you know, how good can I do it? It was I used an ultra wide because I wanted to get this wide landscape. And it was from very far away. It was from what's called Land's End from which is I don't even know. It's probably twenty miles from from the Bay Bridge or from the Golden Gate Bridge. And I just cropped the heck out of it as tight as I could. Everything still looked clear. It had a little noise, but it certainly was usable. If I wanted to actually show people the detail, the close-up detail of the Golden Gate Bridge from that exact shot, it was definitely usable. So, yeah, they're, they're, they missed the mark on that. Uh, they, they definitely should include it in the next Pixel iteration. I probably will once they realize that ultra-wide really is a great additional feature to the, the camera system. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I so I find myself a lot of times speaking specifically to that ultra wide lens thing. Um, I've been really impressed with how much I'm able to capture, even like when I'm super up close to something, and I think, uh, oh, I'll switch this to the ultra wide, and suddenly the photo is that much uh, better. Yeah, yeah, and so I am a little bummed about this not having that, especially because. I think the thing that Google has done a great job at with their phones is making the phone that has an incredible camera system, be it be it hardware-wise or software-wise. I don't care where it comes from. I want a photo that when I take it, yeah. it's what I want. And so that, to me, is kind of the bummer here because Google, where, where 
I may not be as into the Android camp or may not be as into the, you know, some of the things I have always been able to say, you know, well, those Pixel phones really do take great photos. And mm. I know that they're doing some, you know, they're working some software magic again with uh, the optical zoom version. Yeah, and I've seen some comparisons. They're really, really, pretty really incredible, incredible. Yeah. Uh, because it's using both the uh, optical zoom camera and then something called super res zoom yeah, super res zoom. Uh, to yeah. make that happen. But one thing, I, I, you know, still sticking with these these Pixel 4 devices I don't take a whole lot of video myself, mm. but I think of the everyday person who is, you know, Snapchatting, Instagramming, this, that, and, and uh, you know, taking videos of, of their kids or taking videos of pets. And Lori, one thing that, that the iPhone at least has, has had a huge lead on is video. And it seems like we're, it's sort of staying ahead here because the, the, Pixel 4 does not have exactly the capabilities of uh, the iPhone 11. Um, Did they even mention their video capability on at the event? You know what? <laughs> they, they didn't they, even say anything about the the video. That's a really that's a really great point. If they did, it was very much in passing. They did not focus on it. They really spent the majority of the time. Uh, they spent a lot of time actually talking about the camera capabilities, mm -hmm. but video not so much. Yeah. 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 Then right now with the the iOS 13, the iPhone 11 and 11, uh, 11 Pro, um, there's there's editing on on your on your iPhone now a video, and that's a huge improvement. That's something that people have been wanting for a long time is the ability to edit your video right on your yeah. phone instead of having to transfer over to your Mac or PC or something like that. So yeah, uh, Apple is definitely made a huge steps forwards in terms of video, and and that I think. That that shows that Apple really is thinking of the creator, um, creatives, um, to try to appeal to people that do more than just pull their phone out and snap pictures of their kids, but people who are trying to develop, you know, mini movies that they put on their YouTube channel or something like that. Your mm -hmm. phone in your pocket is capable of doing a lot more than it ever could before to the point where you almost don't even need, um, you know, a fancy camera if you want to have a YouTube channel, you can do 4K video on the front facing camera of the iPhone 11. So, you know, why buy a camera? <laughs> you don't even need a GoPro at this point. You know, you've got it right there on the front of your camera, on the front of your phone. Yeah. So let's talk about gesture controls. Um, this is the the feature that, you know, had been rumored. And I think we even had somebody on to talk about uh, the motion radar yeah, solely solely radar yeah all that magic mm -hmm. and i am sort of squarely in the middle where I, i'm kind of going let's wait and see how like what this technology enables but i'm curious uh from the perspective of someone you know who has an iphone that uses face id and the facial tracking and stuff like that how do you think the the radar features those air gestures and things sort of compare to face id and are you interested in this technology and sort of the other opportunities that it presents, like knowing that when I bring my hand over the phone, when my alarm's going off, we can sort of turn down the alarm because a, a human's interacting with it. Right now. Okay. So first of all, what is it? Five years ago when they first announced Soli, I happened to be at Google IOO and my mouth dropped at the capabilities that they could do with it at the time. You, you have this, you know, radar is so it's capable of picking up such specific detailed information that it really is advanced technology, even though it's existed for, you know, 
decades and decades. So on the one hand, I think radar is absolutely amazing. I I hope that Apple will implement something similar into future phones. But I also know that right now it's niche and it's it's I'm not going to call it a gimmick. But it's there's no really good use cases for it. Um, you can swipe left or swipe right in the air to you know change your volume or switch a song or you know hovering your hand over uh, dims the the volume of your alarm. But that's it. It doesn't it doesn't have scroll. You can't swipe down to scroll or anything like that. There's so many things it could potentially do that plopping it into a phone right now to me. And this is Google does this a lot. It's great that they experiment and they like to put those experiments into the hands of people. But at the same time, it could have a negative impact on what the future of radar could be because if people find it uninteresting, they don't like it, it doesn't use work right. They they find out that they just never use it because it's easier to like literally physically swipe the screen. Then the implication is that radar is useless and they won't go forward with it. Or, you know, other companies won't try to implement it themselves. So. As a first iteration, I think that radar in a phone is a, is a beta and that there's a lot that could come from it, but we we just don't know yet. Mm -hmm. I, I would love to see radar to be um, implemented on all phones, but only if it's doing something useful and making it easier and more interesting to use my phone instead of just being able to hover my hand left or right to switch a song. Yep. That's kind of that's kind of where I am with that. Um, Lori, I want to thank you uh, so much for joining us today and for sharing your thoughts on the Made by Google event. Uh, if people are looking to get in touch or want to follow you, where can they do that? They can find me at Appaholic. That's A-P-P-A-H-O-L-I-K. Um, I'm Lori Gill at most of the other social things. And of course, I'm writing all kinds of stuff on imore.com. Excellent. Well, we thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Thanks for Laura. having me. We'll talk to you soon. All right. Bye-bye. Now, coming up next in our increasingly screens-first world, parents are looking for ways to limit and or monitor their kids' tech activity. Now, one way they're doing that is with screen time. But is Apple's offering failing parents? Well, we will answer that question. But before we do, I'm thrilled to tell you that this episode of Tech News Weekly is brought to you by Cashfly. You can give your users the seamless online experience they want to power your site or app with Cashfly CDN and be 30% faster than the competition. No matter what industry your business is in, if your website is directly tied to company revenue, you've got to give your customers the fast downloads they need with Cashfly. Cashfly CDN delivers rich media content up to 10 times faster than traditional delivery methods and up to 30% faster than other major CDNs. It's backed by a 100% SLA. Cashfly guarantees the best user experience for all your customers, no matter where they are or what devices they're on. You can join the thousands of others who trust Cashfly's reliable network, including LG, Microsoft, Adobe, and Ars Technica. In fact, we've been hosting all our podcasts, audio and video, on Cashfly for a decade. Every month, our viewers and listeners download petabytes of data fast and flawlessly. Twit literally would not exist without Cashfly. Thank you, Cashfly. You can say goodbye to logging in multiple times a week or worse, even daily trying to track your CDN usage. There are no billing spikes. You get a custom plan tailored to your CDN needs based on yearly usage trends. On average, customers who switch to Cashfly save more than 20%. Just imagine what you could do with that 20% and your time. 
And just for Twit listeners out there, Cashfly is giving away a complimentary detailed analysis of your current CDN bill and usage trends so you can see if you are overpaying 20% or more for CDN. Learn more at twit.cashfly.com. Once again, that's twit.cashfly.com. And we thank Cashfly for their support. All right, so Apple created screen time to allow parents to control the use of their children's devices. Google has one of these as well on, on Android phones. So they're all kind of doing this. But kids have always been very crafty, I know from experience, uh, more so than even Apple engineers at Cupertino would like to admit, <laughs> I imagine. And that is making things difficult for parents, ultimately. Joining us to talk about how screen time is failing for parents is Reed Albergati from The Washington Post. Welcome back to the show, Reed. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you back. So I'm an Android user. Uh, from the outside looking in, I think I've always kind of assumed that the closed nature of iOS actually ensured that a feature like this would be bulletproof. And, and I also realize that in technology, nothing is bulletproof. But anyways, <laughs> uh, more so than maybe without, uh, you know, if it was from someone else. Uh, how is screen time supposed to work? And what assurances has Apple uh, given to users about its effectiveness right now? Well, it's it's supposed to work as a built-in function on the phone where you turn this thing on and you're now in control of your kid's phone. So they can't do anything without you knowing, without you giving them permission. And the way it actually works in practice is that kids, you know, get frustrated because all of a sudden they're trying to go on TikTok or YouTube or, or what have you, and they get a notification saying they're not allowed. And they start playing around with the settings on the phone turning the phone off and on. They just basically press every button until they find a way around the screen time. And it turns out there are lots of these bugs out there and they they talk about it on Reddit, they post about it on YouTube. I mean, it's amazing how much information you can find out there on how to get around screen time. And Apple really has been very slow to fix these bugs and that's really frustrated some of the parents that I talked to for this article. Yeah, I can imagine that. Um, I mean, along that line specifically, obviously, like you say, kids are finding these hacks, uh, almost stumbling on these <laughs> these hacks in some ways, but they, they know where to turn to to find them. Why do you think Apple isn't kind of buttoning up uh, these, you know, these open holes uh, as quickly as kids are finding them or as parents even know about them? You know, I, I really can't answer that question definitively. But what I can say is I talked to all of these parents and some of them have called Apple customer service and gone back and forth complaining about these bugs. And they've asked Apple that question. And Apple hasn't really told them that they're going to fix these these bugs. And what the parents say is they don't really think this is a high priority for Apple. Mm. And and it that kind of that that sentiment sort of makes sense because it is a little odd to have a company that has a an extremely popular consumer product coming out with ways for people to use that product less. It's kind of a strange mm. situation. And, and really, this came after about a year ago, after shareholders complained to Apple's board that the company wasn't doing enough to address screen time addiction, which is, you know, a growing problem. So it, it could be, and I think some of the parents have, have surmised this, that that Apple has, was sort of pressured into coming out with this product and that it's not a top priority for the company. Uh, could you speak a little bit more in detail about some of the ways that uh, folks are circumventing 
the screen time? You know, what are, so you've talked about them looking up uh, YouTube videos or Reddit. What are some of the hacks that are being used? Yeah, so I, I actually played around with this on my own. I had a phone set up as a, you know, a kid. My actual kids are a little too young to practice on, so <laughs> I did it by myself. And one of the ones I found really entertaining was, uh, so if, if you have YouTube installed on your phone and your parents limit the amount of time you can spend on YouTube, so if you hit that limit, what you can do is open up iMessage, which isn't blocked by default. And a lot of parents like to keep iMessage open so that you know their kids can t- continue to communicate with them. You open up iMessage and the YouTube app is embedded within iMessage. So you can just open up the YouTube app and search for whatever video you want to watch and watch anything you want. So that was one. Um, another one which has actually seems to have been fixed in iOS 13, but but existed for a very long time is when kids reach the, their time limit, they would open up the clock settings and just change the time. <laughs> uh, so that that seemed to get around it. And you could see if you went back and looked at these message boards, you could see parents complaining about this for months and months and Apple, you know, really not doing anything about it. Although finally in iOS 13, that seems to have been fixed. And then I think the most entertaining one was one of the parents said that her kid just started turning the phone on and off, just, <laughs> just on and off and, you oh, know, pressing a bunch of buttons and he, he called it colliding the system. And eventually oh, that's great. <laughs> you would get around screen time by doing that. Yeah, as I'm hearing you talk about this and as I'm really thinking about how Apple has implemented this, this is this is just a feature that is by default residing in the settings, right, mm-hmm. on iOS. Mm-hmm. And it makes me think about how Google has approached this as well. Google has something called Family Time. And uh, we use it in our in our household. You know, our kids, they have tablets. They use them on the weekends. And so we're able to control the tablets. And the way Google does this a little bit differently, I think, from from Apple is it's not a setting that's just in there. So it's, it's so it's not a setting that can be turned on. And if you are able to turn it off, you get to the full thing. The way Google does it is it, it's from the beginning when you're actually setting up the phone. So I say activate family time with this email address. Now I go to the device and I set it up with that email address and it sets up a limited version of Android, a limited access version of Android right from the beginning. So there's just literally no way to get to those settings the way it's set up right there. Just kind of makes me think, you know, is is that a better approach? I, I don't know if there's really a much of a question in there, but it's just kind of a, a, a thought that, you know, maybe this is uh, one of those points where Apple does, you know, does their system one very specific way and they do it well a number of, in, for a number of things. Uh, but I don't know, is that just simply not working in this case? There could be a better way, right? I think it's, I think it's a, a fair point. And, you know, part of the reason we looked at, at iOS versus Android is that, you know, of all the parents we talked to and parenting experts, they said that iOS is just by far, you know, the most popular operating system for, for parents yeah. buying their kids' phones. Um, it seems like that's what kids want. But there are a lot of other options out there. And even on, even on iPhone, you can use a bunch of third-party apps that do control, you know, your kid's phone. Those ones actually seem to have more loopholes if you talk to parents. Right. And I think the reason for that is that Apple is not an open ecosystem, so they don't allow those apps full access to the operating system. And I think that's a real challenge for companies that are trying to do this on iOS. 
Um, but I think there are other approaches that it's interesting hearing you talk about family time, because if you set up, if you actually set up an account for your kid on an iPhone, even if you, you put in their age as, you know, an 11 year old, by default, they're allowed to download any app, including ones that are meant for, you know, 17 plus, and they're, you know, they can get into a, a lot of adult content that way. So it, it definitely requires a lot of knowledge, a lot of research on the part of parents if they're going to if they're going to buy an iPhone to figure out how to how to safeguard the phone. Now, uh, go, is, Micah. This is, this is probably <laughs> speaking. I know it is. It is speaking from a place of privilege. I don't know what what word to use here because it may not be a privilege that I don't have kids. But speaking from a place maybe of ignorance, I guess, of, of not having kids. Yeah. Is there not a role for the parents to play in the conversation? Like the the fact that I I get it, but the fact that we have to set up these uh, these rules and put in place these different policies can that not in some way be helped by explaining to the child like this is why these rules are in place, this is why I am suggesting this, and this is why you know you can't use your phone after this time. Are they then less likely to try to circumvent a service if they know and they like there's just rules and regulations in the house that we don't use our phones after this time? Is that too much to hope for? <laughs> I don't even know who I'm asking here. Like, I'm kind of asking you, Jason, but I, I don't know. Like maybe that's just too much to hope for. Yeah, well, you got two parents here that can answer. Reed, go first, and I'll answer as well. Well, my kids aren't old enough yet. My yeah. my kids are three and one, so I haven't had to deal with the the technology problem yet. But I will say that um, I went into having kids with all these ideas about what I was going to do as a parent and how, how I was going to be different than all the other parents. And that all just goes out the window once you're kind of in it, once you're in the trenches. Um, so I, I think this is a, it's just a constant struggle for any parent. But that is the conclusion that some of the parents I talked to came to, which is you're really not going to be able to stop kids from using this technology. It's it's just not going to happen. So the best you can hope for is that you do talk to them about it and you do sort of inoculate them or try to um, inoculate them from the ills of, of the Internet. You've got to explain, like, there are predators out there who are going to use these apps to try and do bad things to you. Or, you know, if you overuse this stuff, if you spend all day playing Fortnite or watching YouTube, you're not going to get your schoolwork done and that's going to have you know, long-term consequences for your life. So hopefully your kids listen to that message. Um, but, you know, I, I think as, as a parent, I've realized like your kids just don't always uh, do what you want them to do. So I have, I have a lot of sympathy for the parents out there. Yeah, I would completely agree from my perspective. Um, and and I, I, I completely agree with what you, what you said, Micah. I, I do not think that a tool like this is the definitive be-all, end-all of any of this. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think that it is a tool to right. employ along with other things like educating your, ch- your children and everything. Uh, my kids are still young enough that they're not, you know, they're not at the, I mean, you know, they're nine and six. So I, I feel like I'm starting to kind of venture into the territory where more conversation around this stuff is mm-hmm. necessary. But I appreciate that there are tools that exist that allow me to kind of button things up a little bit to feel like they are more protected, whether they make an intentional or unintentional exactly. mistake online. Yeah. And I, I want to be clear here. Like I am not 
making an excuse for the technology, which I don't think that you thought that. But just no. to be clear, you know, I still I think this technology should work and should give parents the 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 tools that they need. And I think especially regarding the the latter point that you made here, where what if my kid accidentally sees something yeah. or interacts with someone that they should not be interacting with or seeing that's horrifying that's scary and this device is a portal and it gives you access to any number of things so having it be buttoned down i think is very important and if a child can get around these things and suddenly the kid is able to access something that could harm them in some way that's that's frightening and i understand where that concern specifically comes from yeah yeah uh and one one other thing I, i would say along these lines is um that and and I'm curious to know, Reed, if you talk to any parents that were like that saw this as like a glimmer of creativity in their child to understand <laughs> that like they had this device and they were actually able to, through creative means to do something that a lot of other people have overlooked. Like there's some there's some gold to be found there as far as that's concerned. Would you agree? Oh, totally. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Parents parents do. Uh, I mean, you know, usually. It, they end up taking the kid's phone away and maybe grounding them for a little while, but they, but they certainly appreciate the ingenuity. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I think a lot of parents, you know, especially just reading the message boards, a lot of parents were saying, you know, I'm proud of my kid for, you know, figuring out a way around the rules. Like right. that's how you get a, you know, it's how you get ahead in life. Um, Critical but, thinking. um, you know, and I think they, there's also this acknowledgement that so much of, of the world now revolves around computers. So, mm-hmm. If you can be adept at um, at this type of technology, you do have kind of an advantage. Um, but I, I think there's this flip side to it, which is that kids' brains are simply not certain parts of their brains are just not developed until a certain age, and they can't make perfect decisions all the time. What's crazy about the modern internet, this mobile world, is that kids can so quickly get into trouble that can have lasting impacts on their lives. Mm -hmm. I mean, when I was a kid, I mean, you could, you could, you could get access to things you weren't supposed to get access to, but you had to go through a lot of effort and it probably wasn't as the consequences probably weren't as dire as they are today. Now, I mean, the time between a kid making a bad decision on one of these social networks Mm -hmm. and like literally being, being kidnapped or human trafficked for some of these kids, I mean, it can be, a matter of hours or a day or two. So it's just, it's so fast. Like not, not to take this in a dark turn, but I have been researching this stuff and it's, yeah. it's amazing. Yeah, I completely agree. And I'm happy that you brought that up. Uh, so very true. Uh, very interesting story. Reed Albergati uh, with the Washington Post, WashingtonPost.com. Where can people follow you online to keep up to date with all the work that you're doing? Well, you know, the Post website, also I'm on Twitter at Reed Albergati, just my my full name. And, uh, you know, Facebook, LinkedIn, I'm not hard to find. Awesome. (laughs) Reed, thank you so much for taking time with us today. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It was fun. All right. We'll talk to you soon. All right. uh, We're doing things a little bit uh, different. Our next guest is going to come on in a moment. So while we wait for that, we're going to do our stories of the week. One of my favorite things that exists on the Internet uh, that I kind of still don't totally understand how it exists is the Internet Archive's awesome catalog of abandonware. 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 Uh, that is software and games, that sort of stuff that were produced decades ago that can't really be run very easily anymore due to obscurity or unavailability of hardware to run it on, that sort of stuff. So, for example, 
The Internet Archive houses uh, the Internet Arcade. That has over 1,700 playable arcade games, the original ROMs from the Ooh. 1970s through the 90s. Uh, and it's all done inside of the web so browser. So you can play it? On- so you, you can play it inside the web browser. I didn't know about this. It, this is why I brought it up, because oh it's really God. neat that you could do this. It's not perfect, but it works a lot of the times. It's kind of magical. There are a number of other systems and formats that are offered as well, and I'm not going to list them all, but uh, you know, I was a big Commodore 64 user when I was a kid, so they have 38,000 games there. No, no, you got to list them all. 38,000, go. Uh, okay, starting with one. Deanna <laughs> Sisters, uh, number two, Wizball. No, okay, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I was like, wow. Uh, 12,000 ZX Spectrum titles. Oh, yeah, and the now, ZX Spectrum. I know, that's a cool system. No? No, I don't know you what that is. No idea. <laughs> Let me just uh, look that's that right. up That's right. We're quick. different generations. <laughs> ZX Spectrum. Yes, you look that up. The story is that they've just added 2,500 new uh, uh, MS-DOS titles <gasps> from the 80s and 90s. Is that Minesweeper or is that later? <laughs> I th- well, yeah, I mean, I'm sure there were mines- there was Minesweeper on MS-DOS. I think more of Windows when I think of Minesweeper. Yeah. But MS-DOS, uh, yeah, this is just kind of crazy. This is, you know, from the from the PC era. Uh, Windows was running on top of MS-DOS, if I, if I remember correctly. It's been a long time since I had a, a PC. Ooh, Yogi home. Bear? But uh, it's just kind of cool hey, that ooh. they can do this. And I just really appreciate that they continue to do this. And again, I'm just amazed that they can because it really just yes, feels like, here's Thousands upon thousands of games, like play them now, you know, and it launches the emulator in the browser. I'm here in your operating system. Good. You've got your Sound Blaster uh, sound card installed, so that's good. Uh, we're looking at Commander Keen 7 right now. Oh. But it's just really neat. So, um, wait, this, th- it looked like this and it was run on DOS? Yes. Yeah. So many colors. Oh, oh yeah. I mean, the DOS games actually were really good um, later on, you know, I mean, as things developed further and further things look great do i even have an f1 key on this thing there you go john john our producer and technical director is playing commander keen in the browser no big deal um oh my whole like i've got a a whole weekend ahead yeah oh yeah i'm not gonna see anybody i'm gonna play these games you're gonna play these games and you're gonna gonna spend like maybe two minutes per game you're (laughs) like all right the next one yeah that's how it usually works with this stuff 1724 but so dos is officially 40 years old this library contains software from the beginning on up um and the the all those titles are included thanks to a project called exodos uh, that collects, and then they spend oh. time reconfiguring the software to make it run properly now. Because a lot of these DOS, uh, this DOS software was uh, device specific. It required certain hardware. You might run it on a machine today, and it would go really, really fast because our machines are just so <laughs> fast, and it didn't have any kind of controls on the speed or anything like that. Um, and <gasps> hey, boo boo, hey boo boo, play Bear, this game on the DOS the National Parks. A classic. Let's just be honest. This is a classic. Um, some of the challenges include the long time needed in loading CD-ROM titles. At one time, a CD-ROM, of course, would have around 700 megs, and that would be no big deal if you're putting the CD in your in your drive and right. loading from that. Well, they're emulated here, so in order to like load this into your browser, it has to load 700 megs of data into your memory, and that might take a while. So. Yeah understand that you know and then you're deleting it the second you close the browser window but it's just really neat that you can do this and i really appreciate that the work that they do to preserve all this stuff because otherwise it would be gone forever yeah so these this is volunteers uh well i mean who's who's the guy that runs archive.org i know he's been on triangulation um i i imagine imagine that there are a lot of volunteers involved i mean i think that exodos the the project 
yeah, that's probably run just by people who are passionate about preserving DOS as the whole like emulation community seems to be people who are creating these emulators. You know, a lot of them just want a way to like preserve these games that hold a special place in their heart from when they were younger and the machines may be hard to find now. So, um, I just appreciate that people spend their time to preserve these things so that I can look at them and go, oh, yeah, I remember that one. Me too. I appreciate it as well. <laughs> I've got so much work to yeah, do. Yeah, you've got – yeah, so consider this your homework for the weekend. Play <laughs> all 2,500 MS-DOS sorry, titles. Scunny Cart? What is Scunny Cart? Be, be careful because some things in there <gasps> Rayman. might be uh, might be R-rated. But. Yeah, the first one, like the most viewed one, oh, my God, Oddworld. Oddworld. Oh, Nice. Where in the world is Carvin San Diego? There you go. Oh, this is going to be great. Yeah. So really cool. And and there are a lot of other systems, like I said, that they, that I haven't mentioned. So, um, And that's all for Tech News Weekly. We will see you. Oh, wait. No, we're going to play. No, there is more. But, uh, super neat. Cool. Awesome. Well, mine is not as super neat. But uh, if you've ever had guests over to your home, you may have warned them about your cats or your dogs or your undying love of tree nuts or any number of other things that could result in discomfort for a guest with allergies or other complications. But what about that always on smart speaker you've got sitting in your kitchen? Mm. Should you let your guests know you've got virtual assistants listening in? Nah. Well, they don't need to know. Well, why well, would they care? Well, right? Hmm? Google's hardware chief. <laughs> says, actually, I would let guests know about smart speakers before okay. I enter my, before they enter my home. Okay. Interesting. Fine. So Google, at its recent uh, event, uh, talked about the, what is it, the Nest Home now. Yeah. They've got several devices uh, that work with home the Google Assistant. Yeah, Nest Home Mini. Uh, they've got several devices that work with the Google Assistant. Uh, Amazon, of course, has many, many, many an Echo device uh, that works with their Home Assistant. And... We had, I can't remember uh, what conversation, but recently I was on Twit uh, and the guest that we had on was kind of talking about kids going over to their friend's house for like sleepovers and stuff and those kids having Echo for Kids devices in their rooms. And it's Mm -hmm. like, is this something that a parent should disclose to the parents that are inviting their kids over? Because parents would typically say, hey... Uh, does anyone have any food allergies? And does anyone, you know, my kid has a dog. Is that okay? And this is one of those things now where it's not something that I had considered before. Yeah. But I think that going forward, it is something that we need to be paying attention to. And it was interesting hearing the the Google chief sort of talk about this. But now I'm like, man, am I going to be able to have anybody over to my my house or without having that what now I feel would be an awkward conversation. Like, oh, by the way, I just want you to know I've got a bunch of echoes and if you want me to, I can unplug them. Like what, you know what I mean? It's, it's Turn a very my strange, internet. Yeah. Yeah. Oh God, no. Um, <laughs> I, I can go around and hit the mute button on all of them whenever you get here, like whatever we need to do so that you feel comfortable. But I, I'm curious sort of what is your take on this now? Do you have a bunch of speakers in your oh, yeah. home? Oh, yeah. uh, how do you feel about this as a parent and as just a, I assume, you know, you and your wife would have guests over occasionally. Oh, for sure. For sure. I've never thought to warn someone about this. Um, and partially because so many people I know have Google Homes or, or Echo devices. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, to a certain degree, I've felt... Well, I've just, honestly, I mean, well, first of all, I've just never thought to do it. Mm-hmm. But thinking about it now, I feel like there's enough 
ubiquity amongst a lot of the people that I know that it feels maybe a little less necessary for me to warn them because it's like right. they got one too and and you know there's that um but when you're talking about kids maybe that's a different story right like we have a Google Home mini in almost every room of, of our house mm-hmm. and that includes the kids room we have a limited version of you know we have software limited versions of the google home mini in their rooms uh and you know we control the content on all of them so right. we get rid of you know the possibility of um explicit content right. appearing because we just don't want to go down that road google play and, this and, song and it's like yeah every exactly word is a curse word yeah. and, and google makes it relatively easy to do that it's not 100 percent perfect but it's good enough in my experience so so maybe what you do is you take a page out of concert venues and you post a consent form on your door <laughs> and it could say something like, when you enter my home, you consent to photography, audio oh recording, God. video recording, internet broadcast, et cetera, et cetera, to major tech companies and myself. By entering, you waive all rights to these recordings. <laughs> you have been fully informed of your consent, liability, and release before entering my home. Also, would you like a glass of wine? No one is ever coming to my home again. <laughs> If I send that, I'll send out a PDF. Like, I need you to sign this before you come in. Could you get it notarized, actually? I need a notary public to sign off on this. That's horrifying. And I think that that is part of the reason why I'm not currently doing this. But it also sounds like if you're among your peers, you know, these these folks that also have these devices and you sort of all are comfortable with this, then it's less of an issue. Yeah, maybe so. Uh, But... For some reason, I have this problem where I make friends with people who aren't as invested in tech. I don't know what that is. I don't know what that says about me, but... Um, yeah, do they have opinions on this? I would yeah, and that, that's... Yeah. Is it something where... And it's also one of those things like, oh, God, what you don't know can't hurt you. Yeah, right. If I point it out, then are they suddenly going like... Oh, well, who's listening? Oh, I'm, yeah, suddenly there's these conversations that they plan to have that they aren't going to have anymore. Yeah. You know, and you get an inauthentic version of, yeah. the, of the evening. Man, as a result of it. that's a tough, that's a tough thing. And, and ultimately, we know that these devices, the way that they're set up, um, well, <laughs> in theory, the way that they're set up, um, it's a wake word that triggers the listening of anything other than the wake word, at which point things can be recorded. I have mine set up to be deleted every three months. I have the on both uh, Google and Amazon. Um, And with uh, Siri, uh, now whenever you upgrade to the latest version of iOS, you actually have to opt in to sending uh, the voice things away to be graded or whatever. Um, And so in that case, it is something that I'm sort of making sure is already in place. Mm Mm-hmm. But it is. It's kind of a, I don't know, it's a tough thing. I, I, do we call it out, in which case it does make people maybe suddenly they get uncomfortable about something that you as a, as a tech expert are already taking care of some of the concerns? Or do I let, what I should do, I think, is let them make that decision for themselves. But then it's like, let me send you nine paragraphs explaining to you yeah. how this technology is okay or it's not. Like, I don't want to add worry that doesn't need to be there as someone who does understand this. Well, and as we're, t- as we're talking about it, it, it kind of strikes, it, it occurs to me that like, you remember Google Glass from a couple of years ago and everybody was all freaked out about someone, you know, holding a camera up and, and recording them. Mm-hmm. The reality is the camera was very visu- visible mm-hmm. uh, and, we do it, and, and we do it all the time. It's with our smartphone. Right. So we don't warn people when they come into our house that we might videotape them while they're there. Right. Uh, right. Or, or whatever. Yeah. Right? And, and when they're Instagramming, they're not telling us like, oh, yeah. I'm going to post you on Instagram. Right. Like we just kind of assume that the, 
that there's a level of comfort in that mm-hmm. and that, that people are aware enough to make that decision for themselves. Right. And one Maybe of my, one of my eyes here, is but... actually fake. It's a camera. So I am recording <laughs> oh, right now. Interesting. We yeah. should do a show on that. Yeah, maybe. Um, so, so maybe, maybe that means that it's a little bit less necessary, that it's just kind of like a, a sign of, of where we are today. It, Perhaps. The technology. I don't know. Perhaps. I don't know the answer. Yeah. But Rick Osterloh seems to know. Yes. And he's, 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 he's you know, I don't believe, consent. I gotta I say, I don't really believe that he does that. I don't either. Uh, but I, before we move on, I do want to say one last thing. And that is, I really like it when tech, non-tech outlets interview uh, tech companies and like tech company CEOs or chief, chief staff, wherever it happens to be, uh, because they ask questions Everybody else is there asking questions about the hardware that was just announced. And non-tech outlets, they did this at Amazon's event, and they did this at – the BBC was the one who talked about this. A lot of the questions were about security, privacy, and things like that. yeah. Yeah, and then Google's recent – the revelation about Google sort of targeting um, folks without homes in – uh, I can't remember where it was. Was it San Francisco? I yeah, don't remember. It was like LA. Yeah, and, yeah. Yeah, uh, New York. And all those yeah. questions, I think, don't get asked by people who are there that are just trying to cover the hardware that was announced. So mm-hmm. more of that, more of, of the non tech outlets getting there and being able to ask those questions, I think, is important. Yeah, look outside of the tech bubble. Yes. All right. There's a reasonable amount of randomness swirling around in the EV news space. So I invited Sam Abuel Smith from Navigant Research and host of the Wheel Bearings podcast to hop on today to talk about some of them with us. Welcome back, Sam. Hey, Jason, and uh, pleasure to meet you, Micah. Pleasure to meet you, too. <laughs> oh, and, and before we dive into yeah. EVs, I just want to mention that my first PC that I got when I was in college, I had an EGA graphics card in there that played <laughs> DOS games that could display a whole 16 distinct colors oh, yeah. at the same what? time. Oh, that was, that was revolutionary. At the same time. Can you imagine that? I mean, that was an upgrade from EGA, which was four. So, well, well, that, yeah. was, that, wasn't, that wasn't EGA. It was the, CGA was the, the base level back in those oh. days. So what was EGA? EGA could do, I think, six, uh, like four colors out of a palette of 16. Okay. And EGA could do 16 colors from a palette of 64 Got it. So colors. it was CGA before EGA. Yeah, yeah you okay. noob. Yes. God, I'm so, I'm so ashamed of myself. Um, I know, it's, that's just because I'm the old guy. Of, of the three, so. <laughs> oh, man. But I remember those days. Uh, Mike has probably well never even seen one of those. Mm-hmm. No, I don't. I'm not sure. Did you know what MS DOS was when I started that story? Uh, yes, okay. yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I did know what MS DOS. All right, at least you but knew I what didn't, DOS. Was. Yeah, I didn't see. I CGA EGA. I don't know. Are we, are we talking about alphabet soup? Who knows? <laughs> That's pretty much what we're doing. Uh, so let's uh, let's start off with Dyson. Apparently, the company yeah. best known for vacuums was working on an EV project <laughs> of their own. It's now no more than a failed idea what was dyson working on exactly i for i guess at some point i may have heard about this but i'm very clueless right now uh, what they could have possibly been working on were you excited about what they were working on yeah i mean there was there was a lot of interesting potential from dyson uh you know i guess about two and a half years ago maybe three years ago they announced their intention to build an electric vehicle and you know they had uh there was a couple of very interesting elements of this from you know because dyson was involved one, you know, Dyson over the years has done some really cool stuff with electric motors. You know, they've got some really interesting motor technology that very compact, very powerful, very efficient motors, which could be very, you know, it's very important for electric vehicles. You know, the more efficient your your electric drivetrain can be, then you can get more range with less battery. And because the battery is the single most expensive part of an EV, mm. if you can if you can get that extra range without having to have as much battery, 
then you can make an EV more affordable and, and also lighter because batteries are also very heavy. Uh, so that was one part of it. The other key part that Dyson had was they were planning to build their vehicles around what's known as solid state batteries. So the batteries that we have in EVs today, typically, uh, you know, you have your your two electrodes, your anode and cathode, and in between them, there's an electrolyte in there. And it's typically either a liquid or some sort of polymer gel material that acts as the electrolyte. So the electrons flow through that to go back and forth between the anode and cathode. Um, the problem with that is that uh, that electrolyte is very reactive and it typically has a lot of oxygen in it. And when you have uh, a short, an internal short circuit between, you know, two of the electrodes touch each other and you get a short circuit, then things start to overheat. And they, when the electrolyte heats up, it gives off oxygen and then really bad things happen when you have thermal runaway. And then you've, you've seen videos of batteries that, you know, have caught fire. And part of the reason why they're so hard to extinguish is because of that electrolyte that's in there. That's, it's necessary, but the way it's done today, it's, you know, it can be very unstable in certain conditions. So what, uh, what Dyson's been working on, and really, frankly, what most, com- most battery companies have been researching is what's known as solid-state batteries, where once you, once you assemble the, the cell uh, with the, the anodes and the cathodes and you put the electrolyte in, it solidifies, and then you have a solid-state cell, and then the, those electrodes can never touch each other because they're, in, they're encased in a solid material, and you know, the whole thing is more stable. Mm. The and and a lot of companies have you know had some success in building samples of solid state cells. And uh, Dyson uh, acquired a company that was actually spun out of University of Michigan here, a company called SACTI Three, uh, and you know that th- that had been focusing on solid state batteries and had some really interesting uh, potential with it. But you know they they've struggled like everybody else doing solid state batteries to actually scale it up to a size big enough for uh, a car battery. Uh, I think we're going to start seeing some solid state cells in some small consumer electronics devices soon, but not so much. uh, It's probably going to be several more years, probably towards the middle to late 2020s from what most people are saying before we start to get solid state batteries in cars. So the kind of the R&D and the effort that um, Dyson has put into this project over the last couple of years with this, you know, with them deciding to kind of pull the rug out from under this project, like, are they going to be able to license that that technology out or, or is it just completely kaput at this point? What do you know about that? Well, I mean, you know, assuming that they have, you know, taken their, their motor technology and scaled that up to a size, you know, from a hairdryer or a vacuum cleaner that's big enough to drive a car, um, then, yeah, absolutely. They could they could easily license that out to other manufacturers. And there are plenty of car makers that would be very interested, I think, in using Dyson motors in their vehicles, um, you know, if they, you know, if they were available at a at a cost-effective price point. Uh, and that's the other key is, you know, the motors that Dyson has done up until now, while they're very good, they're also very small, you know, to scale that, you know, whether you, whether that remains cost-effective when you scale it up to the size you need for a car um, is a very different question. We don't know that yet uh, because, you know, if you look at the products Dyson makes today in their 
various market segments, they're pretty pricey. They tend, you know, yeah. Dyson vacuum cleaners tend to be more expensive than everybody else's. Their their five hundred dollar hair dryer, I think that that Christina Warren is so enamored with, you know, very very expensive for a hair dryer, but. <laughs> You know, um, if if that can be scaled up to an automotive size at a cost-effective price, then they could very easily sell lots of those to the industry. Same thing goes with the batteries. If they can get those batteries working, the solid-state batteries, there are lots of car makers that would love to use that. Uh, and I just want to call out Beatmaster's excellent work in the chat room asking the question, how will Dyson make a car that doesn't suck? Okay. <laughs> well, actually, that that wouldn't necessarily be a bad thing because you know if if you had your air inlet on the bottom yeah. of the car, having it suck, you know, actually pulling the car down, get better traction, Ooh. be great in winter driving, uh-huh. you know, or when you're cornering really hard, you you would actually want something that sucks if, as long as you point in the right direction. Now, could you suck up the snow though, so you become a snowplow too? That'd be kind of interesting. Yeah. How do you suck up the traffic or, or the the to speed? Keep the batteries cool. Yeah. Yeah, you yeah. suck up the snow. It's liquid cooling. <laughs> oh, yeah. We've got it. Wow. We should form a company. Yeah. A Dyson spinoff. There's a lot to be made there. Uh, then there's Faraday Future, the, the American tar- uh, tech startup that premiered its hard work in the form of the FF01 and then later the FF91 at CES a few years ago, only to then end up restructuring the business and laying a bunch of people off before coming to market with anything. Now the founder is filing bankruptcy. Do you have faith in this company all along or or was this kind No, of I, I've had I, – I was there at CES in uh, 2018. 2017, 2017 when yeah. they unveiled the FF91. So I was I was at that event that you're showing there, that article from The Verge, and that's that's the the picture that's over my shoulder. Uh, it was from that uh, that reveal of the FF91. Oh wow! And right from almost from the moment that event started, it was clear that this was a company that was probably going to be doomed. Oh wow! Uh, Jia Yiting, who's the the founder, the the, the gentleman who uh, declared bankruptcy and filed for bankruptcy. Uh, keep in mind, he's also the same guy who was the uh, founder of Le Echo, and okay. you know how that turned yeah. out. Yes. Uh, so, you know, I mean, this the at that event in in January of 2017, you know, there was so much hype from this show. You know, th- this was a two hour keynote that they did to reveal this car. It was just insane. Uh, and you know it's a shame because there's actually some interesting elements of this car that they're that they're trying to do, but you know I think that you know Jai Tang clearly had no idea what he was doing running this company. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as as part of this event, you know, this two-hour event, they had they showed a video clip that ran almost two minutes of you know the preparation work for the factory that we're going to build in North Las Vegas, just a, a short distance from where the event was. And all it was was two minutes of bulldozers moving dirt around. They hadn't actually done anything <laughs> except move some dirt. And they spent two two minutes of this of this press event just showing you know earth movers. Oh, so no. it was it was it was not a good sign right from the right from the get go. Uh, I don't think that there was pretty much anybody that I talked to that actually believed that this thing would ever get into production. And and from that event things went rapidly downhill from there they they started running out of money they were trying to raise more money they did a deal last year with a chinese company called evergrand uh that was supposed to put in two billion dollars uh in return for an equity stake in the company and things didn't work out between jia and the the management from evergrand they were trying to push him out and finally they settled that basically you know this company has been on death's door for the last almost three years now and 
with Ja now filing for chapter personal bankruptcy, um, it's going to be really hard for uh, Faraday to actually raise any more money because he's got a couple of, I guess about three and a half billion dollars in, in debts that he owes mostly in, in China. A lot of it related to La Echo, the collapse of La Echo, but yeah. also to Faraday. And, you know, a lot of that is backed by his shareholdings in Faraday. And so, you know, if thing, he sent out a, a letter uh, as he was filing, when he was doing his bankruptcy filing, sent a letter to a bunch of his creditors saying that, you know, we need to, you need to do a deal now, a, re, a debt restructuring deal. Uh, so you get at least some of your money because if this ends up going through and, and, you know, the stock becomes worthless, you're going to end up with nothing, you know, and it's going to be really hard for, uh, for Faraday to actually raise enough cash to continue operations uh, with, with what's going on with Jaw. Interesting. It just makes me think or feel, and maybe you can tell me if, if this resonates at all, that it's A, obviously, it's very, EV is a tough business. It's very hard to launch one of these. But it seems like Tesla for... <laughs> Whether Tesla is a success, I think, is is up to interpretation, but I think they've done pretty pretty reasonably well. I see a whole, I certainly see a lot of them on the streets right now. Um, and I think from the outside looking in, it, it feels like there are a lot of other companies, people who think, well, if Tesla can do it, we can do it. What is the big What is the big differentiator between how Tesla was able to pull this off and how these companies are just kind of failing and, and uh, flailing in trying? So, so as you said, you know, uh, the EV business is hard. And in fact, anytime you're building any kind of physical product, it's hard. Yeah, I mean, yeah. what you have to do is look at, at uh, Leo's history with Kickstarter. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're building anything, it's, it's challenging. And when you're building something as complex as a vehicle, it, you know, that's many orders of magnitude harder. Um, you know, but comparing Tesla to all of these other startups, you know, they're, the, the big difference there um, you know, is Tesla has managed, even though they have not, um, you know, they, they've succeeded in selling a lot of vehicles and creating an aura around the company and building a lot of brand equity. But what they haven't succeeded in doing is actually making money and right. being self-sustaining. Right. Uh, you know, they, they haven't actually been able to generate enough cash from sales of vehicles to pay the bills. And, you know, but what they have done is they've, they've got this cult of personality around Elon Musk that has enabled them to continue to go back to the capital markets and raise money and bring in mm-hmm. – basically keep going. Every time they launch a new car, they essentially do a, a giant Kickstarter. You know, they, they, when they announced the, the Model 3, uh, you know, two years before it went on sale, before it went in production, you know, they were taking deposits on this thing, mm. uh, you know, which was basically bringing in money that they were then using to pay the bills, you know, to, to buy the tooling to build the car, uh, which, you know, so it was really not much different from a Kickstarter. Hmm. The, the difference with these other companies is that they have not had the same kind of success in raising the enormous amount of money that it takes to build a manufacturing plant, uh, to build cars, to, um, to, to actually do the engineering to get the car ready for production, uh, to pay suppliers to get prototype parts, uh, and then to pay them, you know, to get production parts. So, you know, all of this, you know, it's a it's a cascading thing. And, you know, you look at Dyson, you know, Dyson's a company that's been in business for quite a while building other products. So they're familiar with how complex it is to, to build 
products. And then, you know, I think as they started to get further and further along in the EV program, they realized, okay, this is orders of magnitude tougher than building vacuum cleaners or, uh, or blow dryers. And so, you know, we better cut our losses on that stuff now and focus on maybe monetizing the intellectual property that we've developed instead of trying to build complete vehicles. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Now, um, as we kind of wrap things up, I wanted to point out that you, you have a podcast, Will Bearings podcast, willbearings.media is where people can find it. You actually spoke on your most recent episode about the power outages in the Bay Area uh, last week. You discussed the the issue of what EV owners do when a situation like this happens. Um, what, what What is kind of the takeaway on the, on this point? Because it's, a, it's something that I hadn't really considered oh, yeah. when you've got an electric vehicle and, oh, by the way, they've shut off power for days. Holy like, how boy. does that affect an EV owner? Uh, well, it, it actually has a pretty substantial effect. Yes. <laughs> if, uh, if, you're, if you are, you know, if you are charging your EV at home and you're on the grid, um, you're not going to be able to charge it. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that, that Tesla did, I think that was really good, you know, in the days leading up to those blackouts uh, last week is they sent out messages to all their owners saying, hey, you know, you're in an area where, um, you know, your power is potentially going to be out for some period of time. You should make sure your vehicle is fully charged. Wow. Um, you know, and, and actually charge it to the absolute maximum that you can. So that if you do need to go somewhere, uh, you know, you'll have some range available to do that. Um, and, you know, so the same thing goes for any other EV driver, uh, because you're not, you know, um, even, you know, a lot of times, even in a blackout, uh, de- depending on, on where you are, depending on how complete the blackout is, you may or may not be able to get gasoline. Uh, so, you know, if you know there's going to be a, a blackout, even if you're not driving an EV, it's probably a good idea to fill up your tank, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, um, and certainly, you know, charge up your car as much as you can beforehand. Um, even if you're on solar, there's still challenges because a lot of over the last you know, 10 years, a lot of people who put solar on their homes uh, have gone, you know, down the leasing route, you know, some, like what Solar City's business was and, and, you know, Tesla's solar business and there's a few other companies. And those systems typically are tied into the grid, mm-hmm. you know, because the, the way they're doing it, you're leasing the panels. You didn't buy those panels outright. You're leasing panels and generating power. It's being fed back into the grid and then you're using power and paying for that power. Um, in, in most cases, um, if... Uh, if the power goes out, you know, if the grid is shut off, then you're not going to be able to get any power back unless your system was set up with uh, a main cutoff switch so that you can feed that that power and you've got a battery like a, a Tesla power wall, you know, that you can feed the power directly from the panels into your house. So, you know, some uh, some people with solar, even then, we're still not able to charge. So the key is to be able to, you know, get charged in advance. And then going forward, you know, we're going to see technologies like vehicle to grid integration where you start to get bi-directional charging. So instead of power just going into the car, you can also get power out. Oh, nice. um, yeah. The Nissan Leaf actually supports two-way charging over its DC fast charging port. They, uh, Nissan has a, a system called vehicle to home. Um, and unfortunately, there aren't any vehicle to home devices available in the U.S. market right now. In Japan, uh, you can buy like a little box. It looks It's about the size of a, a bar fridge. Uh, and essentially, it does the, the power management. So you can use it to charge your, your car. But if your power goes out, you can also take 
power from the battery and feed it back into your house. And it does uh, it does the DC to AC uh, conversion in there if you're feeding it into your house. Um, so long term, you know, hopefully, you know, EV owners will have access to systems like that that you can use the power in your battery to to power your house. But right now, you're all you can really do is just you know stock up on supplies and make sure your car is fully charged in advance. Yeah, yeah, very cool. Yeah, great tips there. I I do think that there were a lot of people. Um, you know, I I happened to be out of town when all this was happening, so I was following <laughs> you it all lucky online. Duck. I know. I really I really dodged a bullet there. Uh, but a lot of people were thinking. You know, I was seeing a lot of tweets about like, well, I bet the uh, you know. Uh, inquiries into solar are like going, going through the roof up, and it's yeah. like well that may be probably is the case but they're going to be disappointed when they realize that that still would not have helped them in this situation well yeah you, you need so you need to make sure that if you're going to do that that you know get some sort of uh storage battery yeah. for the home so that you know again you know even at night you know your your solar panels aren't going to generate any power so having yeah. a, a storage battery and the ability to disconnect from the grid and have the solar panels just feed your house uh, is is really an important factor. Absolutely. Sam Abuel Samid, uh, you are awesome. Thank you for jumping on and sharing your knowledge on everything cars and EV with us. Uh, Will Bearings podcast, of course, willbearings.media. I uh, work for Navigant Research. Anything you want to uh, tell people about as far as where they can follow you online? Um, no, I'll, I'll be, uh, I'm actually, um, next week I'm going to be recording a, an episode for a new podcast that's coming out, uh, that oh, a friend nice. of mine's doing, which I'll, I'll let you know about that when that comes out. Cool. Um, but, um, yeah, wheel bearings and, and also you can find me on Forbes, uh, and I do a column for the, um, automotive, uh, or autonomous vehicle engineering magazine for the society of automotive engineers, uh, that comes out every month in that magazine. Uh, and just, you know, anywhere on Twitter and, and uh, Google, but you won't find me on Facebook. Yeah, <laughs> understood. Thank you so much, Sam. We'll talk to you soon. Appreciate All right, it. Thanks, guys. Take care. Thanks. All right, and that is it. Tech News Weekly publishes every Thursday at twit.tv slash TNW. That's the show page. That's where you can go to subscribe to the show in audio and video formats, and we ask that you do subscribe. It's, it's better that way. It is. It is. Uh, you can also be a part of the show by emailing us at tnw at twit.tv and follow us on social media at twit in some places, at twit.tv on Instagram. Really, you got to check out our Instagram and follow that if you haven't, because it is awesome. Yeah. And new videos and photos all the time. If you want to tweet at me, I'm at Micah Sargent, and I'm pretty much that on all of the social things. You're so lucky. I'm, <laughs> I'm like all over the place. Uh, but on Twitter, I'm at Jason Howell. Thanks to everyone who helps us do this show each and every week. John, Jeff, John, Colleen, uh, they're all in here helping out, and we really appreciate it. Uh, and we appreciate you guys for watching. We'll see you next time on Tech News Weekly. Bye, everybody. It's back.